Good morning, everybody. Thank you, worship team. Sometimes we make a disconnect, but as we approach God's word, it's not like we've stopped worshiping. We just continue to worship as we respond to his truth. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a section of God's truth in 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24, seeing what God has for us this morning. 1 John chapter 3, 11 through 24. If you don't have your Bibles, uh, there, might, there should be some spread out ahead of you, uh, on the seat ahead of you. Uh, if not, um, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. As you and I continue to learn, it's really helpful to have um, right in front of us the scriptures we tend to read through, and you can make notes and different things, and, and so I just encourage you to do that. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was, the evil, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Our Lord, I recognize as I look out and see my brothers and sisters that we've each chosen to be here this day. There's a lot of things on our list we could have done. A lot of things that have pressured us to do. But this morning we're compelled to come. To come hear from you. And to worship you. And Lord, I would pray that that's really the attitude of our hearts. And God, that you would connect with our hearts. Continue to as we open your word. And Lord, we study not simply just for academic purposes, far greater than that, God. It's your heart we want to hear. We invite your word and your spirit to change us, to become more of what you'd want us to be. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Sometimes contrasts are used to reveal 
something that's real. Sometimes contrasts are used to reveal something that's difficult for us maybe to even define. And that's what God uses here, contrasts. Contrasts to help his people, that's you and I, to understand how he wants us to live as his followers. Now as we've gone through this, John has approached his, his hearers with a pastoral heart, with a, with, with a heart of a father, as he's instructed them. And he's not done. <laughs> he's going to continue to instruct them. And, and we read in this morning some of these contrasts, which he means to teach and instruct his people. Let's look, first of all, verse 11 through 13. He's contrasting marks he begins with. John, now remember, has he seen the love of Jesus in action? He ate with Jesus. He watched how Jesus interacted with people. If anyone was qualified to speak on the love of Jesus, it would be John. He got to see it up close and personal. It would be like our spouses. If you really wanted to know what we were like, you could talk to our spouses. Why? Because they see us up close and personal. Now, I don't know about you. It makes me a little uncomfortable. But the fact of the matter is they do see us up close and personal. They see us in the day-to-day. That's how John was. He got to see Jesus in the day-to-day. So he's very qualified to talk about Jesus' love and action. He's already reminded his hearers of this issue of love, and he comes back to it, and he's going to come back to it again. Because it's really the distinguishing mark of the Christian. And once again, he gets black and white. We love that. It becomes pretty clear. And he gets these contrasting marks he begins with. Verse 13 and verse 15, he talks about this first one. The mark of the world is hatred. Verse 13. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So the mark of this world is hatred. Now sometimes to define a word, or I should say define a vague notion or something like that, like love, sometimes it's hard to define. It's helpful to contrast it with the opposite, in this case, hatred. Now his use of the world in verse 15 and other places, he's referring to this unbelieving world around us, the unregenerate world. Um, the world system, but also the people around us who don't know Jesus, who love Jesus, or even care about Jesus. And let's define hatred. First of all, it's the opposite of love. We may define it as a selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding others as we seek our own interests. Now, we think of hatred, we think more of the extreme, don't we? An axe murderer. Clearly, an axe murderer hates people. But we wouldn't tend to bring it down a little bit more to maybe something that we would possibly have to wrestle with. Back to the definition. It's the opposite of love. It's a selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding other people. And the essence of hatred is a self-centered bent of our fallen nature that says... Maybe I'll help you if only if it would help me. But hatred says, make no mistake, it's about me. It's not about you. And I'm not going to express anything to help you because I'm all about helping myself. It's clearly a selfish understanding. And sometimes I've been in counseling sessions where one of the spouses said, well, I hate to say this, but I've just grown to hate them. I said, no, you haven't. 
you've chosen to be selfish. And you've expressed that selfishness with this attitude. And that's really the root of hatred, selfishness. When it comes down to it, selfishness says I'm looking out for me. And when we understand hatred as such, we can see that it characterizes the unbelieving world. Now John says five things about hatred here in this text, which are in direct contrast to God's love. The first thing he says in verse 12, that hatred is typified in Adam's firstborn. We're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute. But Cain's hatred toward his brother typifies the self-centered evil bent of fallen human heart. While our self-centeredness seldom goes to the extreme of murder, make no mistake, the roots are there. Hatred is typified in Adam's firstborn. Hatred also originates with the devil, verse 12. We should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one. Well, that's pretty harsh. The Cain was of the evil one. And John's reference to the murderer in verse 15 could recall Jesus' words in John 8, 44, where he says, the devil has been a murderer from the beginning. And so hatred has its source in Satan, in the devil. And you have kids sometimes who walk around, maybe older kids, uh, who said, I hate that person, or, or I hate you. Don't say that. Especially kids, don't say that. Because hatred finds its source in the devil. Whereas love finds its source in someone else. To harbor hatred is to oppose God, simply put. We also learn from here that hatred divides people. At best, hatred becomes indifference or annoyance towards other people. At worst, selfishness and hatred become murder. James 4, 1 through 2 says, You lust and you do not have, and so you murder. I mean, it ties covetousness with murder because hatred divides people. Look at Cain and Abel, they were brothers. Brothers, and what divided them? Hatred. Hatred divided them. We also learn from Matthew 5, 21 through 22. If you have, that would be good to turn there. I think Jesus hit something that we would rather not him talk about. But he does. And it hits on this point that hatred divides people. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever shall say you fool shall be guilty enough to go into hell. That word Raka we would consider like empty headed. That type of phrase. Good for nothing type person. And so Jesus brings this whole idea of hatred to anger, kind of more to the root of it. And so we would maybe say, well, I don't have to deal with hatred, but then when Jesus starts equating it with anger, uh-oh, now it's getting a little more personal. Because anger divides people. Such is the essence of hatred. While we cringe when we hear someone murdering someone else, we often tolerate the roots of the sin by excusing our anger as justifiable, but hatred divides people. In verse 12, we also learn that hatred is motivated by personal sin. 
Look at what verse 12 says. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Did he slay him because Abel was a jerk? Did he, did he slay him because Abel was some scoundrel? No. He slayed Abel because his sins, his personal sin. You see, hatred's motivated by personal sin. It was not because Abel was a bad person necessarily or evil. Rather, Cain's deeds were evil, where Abel's were righteous. And we learn this as we go back to study Genesis about their life. So while hatred may be directed at other people, invariably, a hateful person is opposing God. He's at odds with God. Not only is hatred motivated by personal sin, verse 14 and 15 tells us hatred is evidence of spiritual death. A person whose life is marked by selfish hatred of others shows no evidence of new life in Christ. Now he's not saying that no murderer may be saved. That's not really what he's talking about. John's use of the present tense verbs points to the overall direction of a person's life. A person whose life is marked by a pattern of selfishness, envy, jealousy, strife, and hatred gives evidence that he remains in spiritual death. Now, while John's words are an evidential test of a person's spiritual condition, they're also an exhortation, I believe, to those that profess to believe in Christ. In other words, as Christians, we have to battle hatred that stems from our own selfishness. While on the one hand, spiritual growth results inevitably from spiritual life, on the other hand, it doesn't seem to happen without our constant attention to a condition of our hearts. And whenever the deeds of flesh rear their ugly heads, we must put them to death and replace them with the fruit of the Spirit, Romans 8 and Galatians 5 teach us. And so John shows the mark of the world is hatred, self-centered, look-out-for-number-one mentality, which, if unchecked, results in murder. But in stark contrast, he says, there is a contrasting mark, and that is the mark of the church is love. John draws the sharp point with a point-by-point contrast between hatred that marks the world and love that should mark the church. Whereas hatred is typified in Adam's firstborn, love is typified in God's firstborn, Christ. Colossians 1 said Christ is the firstborn over all creation. It's not talking about firstborn as we would. It's talking protokos is the word. means first-ranked. Jesus first ranked over all creation, and love is typified in him. Verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Love is typified in God's firstborn Christ. We've experientially come to know love when we know the one who laid down his life for us. The cross is the supreme demonstration of what real love is. It's what God's love is. Whereas hatred originates with the devil, love originates with God. And John's going to state this directly in chapter 4, verse 7, but it's implicit here. John states that the one who does not love is not of God, implying that the one who really loves is of God. And so love is typified in God's firstborn Christ, And love originates with God 
And we also know from verse 16 that love unites people and results in laying down our lives for others. Whereas hatred divides people. Now I think verse 16 can be a hard saying. We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I'll be honest here for a moment. Would you lay down your life for the people in this room? It's easy to sit here and say yes. But if we were honest, the urge to save our own skin is pretty strong. But John lays it out there. And he goes on in verse 17, Whoever has the world's goods beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide in him? In other words, if love's the standard of laying down our lives, and you say, yeah, I'll lay down my life for my brother, then read verse 17, because that's what it looks like. When you see your brother in need who has a need, if you're to lay down your life for your brother, seek to meet that need. If you see a person who's hurting, if you're to lay down your life for a brother, you sacrifice what you're doing. It could be time, could be a lot of different things to help them, because that's what love looks like. And love is a distinguishing mark of the church. And love unites people. If you love God, sometimes that love looks like setting aside little details of our lives. Those little things of selfishness to serve other people. Self-sacrifice, doesn't it seem, is never convenient. But when we reach out and love on each other, it's uniting. Because the mark of God's love is it's uniting It's not like hatred, which divides people. We only need to look at the history of America to see what hatred does. With racism, with all the things our history teaches us, hatred divides people, but love, God's love, now that unites people. Verse 16 also tells us that love is motivated by God's love in Christ. That's the point of this verse. If God's love abides in your heart, it will flow through you to others. If your heart is shrinking, stop and meditate on what Jesus did for you. If it feels like your heart's shrinking, stop and ponder the love of Christ in the deep love of Christ. And sometimes you and I just need divine refills. We need a refreshing of God's love to push out the selfishness in our life. Love is motivated by God's love in Christ because God's love is a love of a different kind. It's not like our love. Our love is fickle. The love there, whatever we would call it, that comes that, that is meshed with our flesh often just wants the convenience, also doesn't want to be interrupted. That's not love. The love that God has poured into our hearts is a love of a different kind. When Paul was talking to the church in Corinth, he was talking about really the modus of ministry. And he says, why are we pouring out our life for you? Why are we sacrificing the way we are? Why are we doing all this? He said, it's the love of Christ which compels us. Compels us. That word compel is a great word. And the, and the whole idea of, it's, it's kind of like hard driving. And it would be, if you were to take water in a, in, in a river, and as the banks are spread out, you notice that the water just kind of meanders, it trickles down. But if you close those banks and narrow it, the full flow of the water, is, it, the drive, is more powerful. That's that word compels. That God's love has banks that are small in our life and it's a driving force in our life. 
is his love. It compels us. It moves us forward with great force. That's what Paul said. What drives me in ministry is this full force, this fresh flow of God's love. And love is motivated by God's love in Christ, which is the the hardest driving force in the whole world, in the whole universe. We also learn in verse 14 that just like hatred, love is evidence of the spiritual life. Hatred is evidence of spiritual death, but love is evidence of spiritual life. And while this fruit of the Spirit never grows to perfect maturity in this lifetime, we certainly should see growth in love when you compare your self-centered life before your conversion. If you think about the way you lived before Jesus and when you came to Christ, there certainly should be evidence of a different kind of love in your life. There needs to be evidence. Because the mark of the church is love. Well, he goes on in this text to give these contrasting illustrations. He's just in essence said, if you, if you know Christ but continue to live for yourself, if you're unwilling to be inconvenienced, if you're in, unwilling to sacrifice yourself and possessions to meet the needs of others, you need to examine whether you're in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5 talks about that. Paul says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. John's kind of giving a, a distinguishing mark of love, which causes you to step back and say, listen, is that love an operation in my life? He then gives a contrasting illustration. He says, first of all, let me give you a negative example. Cain. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because he had faith. He was trusting in God, and he was looking to him, while Cain wasn't. Cain wasn't rejoicing in righteousness. He wasn't rejoicing in his brother's sacrifice being accepted. I mean, think about that. I mean, if you were a brother, and and you saw your brother sacrifice something, and that God was pleased with it, wouldn't you kind of be excited about that? I mean, wouldn't you want to rejoice in that? Not Cain. He didn't rejoice in that. He got bitter over it. He was instead being provoked to anger. Cain was warned about his anger, yet he refused to listen. This refusal was a refusal to love. You see, it wasn't just Cain's sacrifice which was unacceptable. It was his whole nature. All of his life, the fruit of his life, was evil. And you see it in Cain's anger that Abel pleased God. And Cain was mad because he didn't. Now, Let's try to draw a picture, because we don't tend to bring sacrifices to an altar in this day. But try to draw a picture. Suppose you and your neighbor have big lawns. You mow your lawn when you have to. However, your neighbor mows, trims, puts fertilizer, weed killer on the lawn, and takes great pride in making his lawn look the best. People often drive by and comment how beautiful his lawn looks. And sometimes give you a hard time that your lawn looks so terrible compared to his. Now you could go out and get weed killer. You could go get fertilizer. You could give a little more time to your lawn. You could do that. However, you simply decide it'd be easier to kill your neighbor. That way, his lawn will look just as bad as yours. That seems silly, doesn't it? 
That's what Cain did. Instead of changing his actions, he chose to eliminate the one who was making him look bad. It's the essence of what he did. He didn't do right. He did away with the one who was doing right. He decided to kill his brother rather than change his ways. He's a negative example for a Christian life. John drives home a point in verse 13. He says, the world is not going to hate us because we're good. Generally, generally, the world will at least honor, maybe, admire people who are good. But according to God's word, the world will hate us because we belong to him. When you and I truly love other people, we give evidence that we are genuine followers of Christ. And in a sense, that life that's lived as a genuine follower of Christ becomes a rebuke to a world that neither loves him or desires him. I was reading this week an article, and and I'm not going to pick necessarily on either party or anything, but the article was on why does the liberal world hate Christians? And there were several examples of what that hate has been, the evidence of it. In essence, the, the article was well written. When he got to the bottom, he said, when it really boils down to is genuine followers of Jesus, life is a rebuke to those who don't follow Christ. You know, are doing what they know is wrong. Our life should be like that. It should be a living rebuke to those who don't care about God. But Cain gives us a negative example. But then there's a positive example John gives. We shouldn't be surprised. Verse 16, if you want to know what it means to love, look at Jesus. Because his love is a love of a different kind. This is the love we are to have toward each other. It's different from the quote love of the world. This fluffy love. This love says that I'll love you if you do this. I love you because of this. And if you quit doing this, or if you no longer are this, then I guess I can't love you anymore. That's not Christ's love. There are no conditions in Christ's love. It's an unconditional love. How would you describe it? What are some characteristics of it? Well, the Gospels reveal it was a love without discrimination. Jesus loved all kinds of people. Rich, poor, healthy, diseased, Jew, Gentile. He didn't see people as stereotypes. He saw them as people. And he loved them as people. And it didn't matter what their economic system was. It didn't matter how the world viewed them. They were viewed as outsiders, but in Christ's eyes, they weren't outside his love. His love did not discriminate. It was offered freely. He didn't require people to love him first. That's not what he did. If you remember the, uh, the miracle in Luke 7 of this this, this widow, or Luke 11, and she's coming out, she's lost, she's a widow, she's lost a husband, she's lost her only son, and she's coming out of town as they're mourning this funeral. She doesn't ask for a miracle. We don't even know she knows who Jesus is. But he walks up out of compassion and heals her son. Well, heals him, raises him, raises him from the dead. It was offered freely. That's how Christ's love is. He offers it freely. It was filled with compassion. Jesus cried. He touched a leper. He raised this widow's son. His heart was filled with compassion. He understood people were hurting and helpless and lost like sheep without a shepherd. His love was enduring. 
He didn't give up when people failed, and he didn't give up when it was hard. His love was enduring. It was sacrificial. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. His life. And his love was transforming. And when his love was seen, lives were changed. At the cross, it was a centurion. As he walked this earth, it was a wee little man who climbed a tree. Zacchaeus. It was Saul of Tarsus. When they saw Christ's love, they were changed. And you and I haven't known love until we know Christ's love. And you and I can't begin to know the depths of what is real, true love, until you and I begin to plow and plummet the depths of His giving love and His compassion. And when you and I can get caught up in His love, not this fluffy, conditional love of the world, then we forfeit real love if we get caught up in the world's love and we pick on cheap substitutes. Not the real thing. This is why I believe Paul prayed in Ephesians 3. I want you to note the prayer. He could have prayed a lot of things for these people. But Ephesians 3, here's what he prays for them. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. That the Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He prays that they would go deeper in God's love, that there'd be a deeper experience of it. And often, it seems to make maybe always, that love that we experience on deepening levels comes when we spend more time with Him. I think we make a, a great mistake when we think that we could come, become a Christian and know Christ's love in greater increasing ways without spending time with Him. Without spending time in His Word. Without spending time in prayer. And so if you want to increase in your capacity to love, then spend time with the greatest lover of all, Jesus. Get in His Word. You should have regular prayer times. That's how divine refills occur. Now, whenever I go to a restaurant and they have free refills, they lose money. Because when I go, I'm going to get filled. I mean, I am going to drink that stuff. And so... Oftentimes I'll go and I'll say, I'll have a pink lemonade or raspberry lemonade. Little do they realize they're about to empty the pump because I'm going to keep bringing it. Why? Because I need a refill because I'm thirsty. And when you're thirsty, the only thing that satisfies are refills. Are you spiritually thirsty? Do you need a refreshing of God's love? Then drink from the free flow of His faucet, of His Spirit. And that comes when you spend time with Him. Time in worship, time in His Word, time in prayer, time just spending in His presence. That's how you and I get divine refills. That's what Paul prayed for. And back to John, he talks about a consistent assurance. At first, it almost seems like that was ready to stop at the end of verse 19. It seemed like he was going to a different thought, but the more I studied it, the more I realized he's not. He says in verse 20, God is greater than our hearts. And when I began to ponder what he meant, and I looked in the context, it seems to mean that God's heart is greater than our hearts. God's love is greater than the meanness and selfishness in our hearts. His generosity, his compassion, his kindness is much greater than ours. 
This fact should function as a reason for us to overcome this meanness and the selfishness of our own hearts as you and I seek to be more like Jesus. When we love with Christ's love, when we embrace with His love, which is greater than our hearts, it brings something stabilizing in our life. And as I read these verses and thought about it, it really is true. Receiving and extending Christ's love, first of all, in verse 19, it assures we're born of God. It assures that there's a love of a different kind operating in our lives, and it brings assurance that we're born of God. Verse 22, it brings assurance in prayer. There's this intimacy with God, which we long for this love of a different kind, and it begins to flow out of our lives, and it gives us the assurance in prayer that we can grow in greater depths of intimacy that he hears. Verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because he keeps his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. What are the things that are pleasing in his sight? That we love others with this love of a different kind. And so there's this assurance we receive in prayer. And then verse 24, there's assurance we receive of abiding in him. We're assured that we're on the right track. When we desire him, we're assured that we're on the right track. When we desire to love people and to reach out with His love, we're assured we're on the right track. Do you have this assurance? Do you need a fresh fresh flow and refilling of God's love? Perhaps that's where you're at this morning. I encourage you to immerse yourself in the love of God. What are some personal lessons? Not surprising, you have not known God until you've known His love. You see, God demonstrates... His love, not a love, and certainly not our love. God demonstrates His love. That's a love of a different kind. Don't say you know God and you've never received His love. Don't say you're a follower of Jesus and you've never received and embraced His love and there's no outflowing of it in your life. You have not known God until you've known His love. That's foundational to not just these verses, to all of what John's saying in the book of 1 John. Number two, loving others is neither optional nor selective when it comes to the Christian life. If God's love, if this love of a different kind is going to flow through us, we need to understand love is neither an optional nor is it selective. It involves giving, involves empathy, requires action. As you and I see how desperately people need love, this love in our life should look different. Like this Indiana police officer, Sergeant Todd Durnville. One day he pulled over a trucker who was speeding. And as he got out and asked for the license of the trucker, he noticed how upset and agitated this trucker was. But it was clearly about something else he discerned. This officer, Durnville, took the time to ask, What's going on? It seems like there's something else than you being upset about getting pulled over. The driver told him, I just got the news that the cancer my daughter has is not going to go away. This officer could have done a lot of things. He certainly could have wrote the ticket out. He had every reason to do that. He was a police officer. He was indeed speeding. He acted differently. He opened the door. He bowed on his knees grabbed the hand of the trucker, and prayed for him. 
That is a love of a different kind. And that happens when you and I come face to face with the lover of our souls. And when you and I express his love, which is a love of a different kind, we need to understand it's neither optional nor selective. That's how Christians live. We love. And it strikes me the third thing is that assurance of salvation sure looks a lot like loving others. Proof of the presence of the living God indwelling you is the fact that you truly love other people. It proves God has saved you, delivered you from hell, and putting His life and love in you. It's a love of a different kind. It looks different. And it brings assurance of salvation. Might you and I be marked as a people who embrace a love of a different kind and who express this love of a different kind. Let's pray. Lord, we've looked earlier in the book of 1 John when John said, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That is a love of a different kind. And Lord, it's that love as Christians we've received. And I'm certain it's that love which brought us to the foot of the cross. But Lord, it seems easy in the Christian life to forget somehow how deep and wide your love is. It seems it's so easy to go through the motions of doing this and doing that because that's what a Christian does instead of doing this and doing that because of your love in our life. And that love is compelling us. And I believe some of my brothers and sisters in here this morning are experiencing hearts that are shrinking and are dry. God, give them a greater thirst for you. Would you drive them to your word, to times of intimacy and prayer? God, to a greater expression of worship where you'd refresh them and refill them with your love. And would that love so flow through us, God, that people would see this love of a different kind and would take note. God, we would hope that all this would take place for your glory and your pleasure. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.